Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 65 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you will find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast, and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, please send them your favorite episode. Uh, we are right at the end of the semester for your boy, about to do finals. Uh, I've been studying uh, for my last two finals, biology and anthropology. So by this time next week, I'll be able to tell you with a fair amount of confidence how I fared in those classes, um, although I'm not too concerned about it. I'm going into both with pretty strong grades. Um, but I will say there's something about approaching finals and kind of preparing for them, honestly, which is kind of indicative of a lot of things in my life, which is, I think on another episode, we were talking about me procrastinating. And even though I notice that I do much better, uh, with it, uh, in the latter part of my life now, I still find that I kind of wait until I really have to do things before I do them. Even though I know like, hey, your final's in two weeks. Uh, you already have a, a survey of the information that you have to review for it, meaning, uh, you know, I've gotten, um, um, even though they're not definitive, I've still have got, I still have received from both teachers kind of a, a final exam review sheet. Uh, and, you know, my experience has shown me that there's likely going to be other things that show up, but that may not be on here. If I survey this material, that's the best shot I have of preparing for, for my final, considering that they're both cumulative, right? I can't really spend my time uh, rushing up on everything, but if I focus on these materials, I'll have the best shot I have of being prepared. So um, there, I always tell myself, you know, if you take the next two weeks and you just chip away at this thing, uh, you're going to make your life a lot easier. Um, of course... Uh, I usually wait about a week or maybe four or five days <clears throat> before the final to actually review this stuff. And even though I get it done, and I'm always um, you know, better assured for having done it, I still, there's always a little bit more pressure on me than there would have been if I had actually started it when I sort of knew I should have, or when I would have been best served by it, right? Where I really could have diminished, I don't know the word for it, I could have diminished the pressure, you know? There always has to be a little bit of pressure. And before that used to be a, a deal breaker for uh, for me, meaning I would always wait until the very last minute and I would really kind of work myself up into a frenzy. Now I sort of experience it as like a gentle pressure. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's just something I have to reconcile myself to. But I think the point is, is that um, that's how I've been spending most of my, I mean, outside of work, that's how I've been spending most of the time that I really have to uh, set aside for school or for work. The time that's not my own. Uh, outside of that... <laughs> My girlfriend's been gone for the last couple of weeks, so I kind of have, I've kind of reverted back to this bachelor existence where outside of school and work, my time is completely my own. And uh, I've spent all of it reading and watching movies. Uh, I finished Dracula, which started off really good, but is actually really over long. It's kind of melodramatic and it's this sort of Victorian age novel. And so it's, I don't know, it's bloated with all these um, I don't know, Victorian mannerisms, and um, I think we were talking about this in terms of Da Vinci Code, but there's something very frustrating, and, and, and to be fair, a lot of it is that we're all familiar with the story of Dracula, more or less. 
But you spend about 350 pages of the novel where Van Helsing is kind of very certain that the situation they're dealing with is a vampire situation and everybody else has no clue what's going on. And so at the end of every scene, Van Helsing's like, hmm, I have to, I have to uh, conduct some more experiments. And everyone's like, Van Helsing, please tell me what's going on. And he's like, I can't now, but rest assured, in time, all will be revealed. And this goes on for like 350 pages, and it's like, it doesn't make sense. Just tilt your hand, show everybody what we're dealing with, that we're dealing with fucking vampires, why the suspense? And I think the reason is because the novel's written within these Victorian mannerisms that have nothing to do with real life, it's just how people were supposed to behave, right? People talk in these protracted monologues about... Um, you have appealed to my better senses, sir, and your behavior has demonstrated to me that beyond all others, you have proven yourself to be a truest friend who I can reach out to in my dire circumstances. Very operatic, very soap opery, and um, so it's okay. Yeah, the first part where you know the Jonathan Harker's in the in the in Castle Dracula, uh, that's kind of the best part of the novel. The rest is very very long. I think it's about five hundred pages, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, we all know that Dracula dies, but it's just funny that you're reading this novel. Dracula barely appears in it. Uh, He's in, like, the first 50 pages, and then he shows up in his physical form in maybe, like, uh, a cumulative five pages. The rest, he's just kind of a vague mist, or he's in his fucking box. He's in his fucking coffin of earth being transported places, or he's a bat. You know, but he never appears in his physical form in the rest of the novel for the most part, except for two sentences at the end where he dies. They're like, you spend 500 pages talking about Dracula, 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 and then they kill him in two, second, uh, two sentences. They're like, ha, huh, he popped out of his box, they cut his head off and put a stake through his heart. And that's the end of the novel. And you're like, okay. Anyway, it's just funny, like, if you ever go back and read Frankenstein, you feel the same way, which is, it's just surprising to me that this, this, this is the source material for, for what has become... Um, you know, a staple of our culture. And obviously, it's, it, it, usually, it usually happens because who they become in our, in our sort of collective consciousness is very different from how they appear in the pages of, their, of the source material. They become something quite a bit different. You know, Dracula has now become this sort of stock character. Like, like I don't know, like some sort of creature commedia dell'arte or something like that, which is, you know, they're just a stock character now. And most of the time you see Dracula in popular culture, it has nothing to do with the novel or the original storyline. Um, there's something about those characters where they, you know, Frankenstein, for example, the, the, you know, our, our, our modern conception of Frankenstein has very little to do other than like the coming to life and being a creature, uh, made by a mad scientist. You know, when you actually read Frankenstein, I think most people find it to be very frustrating. Like Dracula, uh, you know, in Frankenstein, he's just this creature who sort of pursues Dr. Frankenstein and when he does pop up, he has these long philosophical monologues, and you're just like, hey, man, you were born three weeks ago. How the fuck do you know how to talk like this? How are you wrestling with these concepts, right? Um, but anyway, that's not even where I wanted to go with all this. I don't even know where I wanted to go with all this. I think I'm just saying that I'm reading a lot. <clears throat> so let's see. We finished Dracula. I don't know. I, I probably told you I read a lot of Elmore Leonard. I read uh, Out of Sight, actually, too. I read that... Um, over the last couple of days. And now I'm sort of in a weird place because I have a bunch of novels that are coming in the mail. I have some more Elmore Leonard. Um, I forget the author's name. It's called uh, Berlin Game, Len Dayton or something like that. It's funny. I actually saw it in... Huh, dude, this is... Uh, I mean, I think that actually this is kind of where Shibumi comes from too. I read the novel Shibumi by Trevanian 
uh, recently, which was not very good. But that was a novel that I had seen referenced in popular culture. I think the first time I saw it was Royal Tenenbaums. And I'm pretty sure it pops up in uh, the John Wick movies. But for someone like me who constantly has their feelers out for what I should be reading next, I kind of take those as signs from the cosmos, you know? Um, ooh, I like this movie, and this is a novel that clearly the filmmaker wants me to know about, or they're, you know, they're showing the cover very clearly for a reason. Um, it's pretty, I guess I wouldn't put it past me to sort of look something up and decide I have to read it. In the film version of, of Jackie Brown, which is a, based on Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard, you see Max Cherry, the bail bondsman, reading a novel called The Berlin Game. And so I looked it up and I ordered a copy, so that's supposed to be in the mail, along with my Elmore Leonard's. Um, I'm going to start reading the whole Raylan series of Elmore Leonard, uh, based on a recommendation of our, our, our podcast MVP, Matt Evans, who told me, uh, he was, I was just sort of telling what I read and he said, Oh, you're reading Elmore Leonard shit. I went on this whole thing where I read the whole Raylan series. And so, uh, um, that's something I'm going to start chipping away through. But, um, yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to say is I have these novels in the mail and because they're United States Postal Service, they're, of course, they're delayed. I mean, especially around the holidays, but shit gets delayed with that fucked up service anyway. Um, I have a couple of days now where I, I don't have any books to read. And so I'm actually, I started to read Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which um, I've been trying to stick to sort of popular fiction. And I was explaining this to my, or I, I said this to my brother and he said, oh, well, that was a, that's a popular book. And I said, no, no, no. I mean like popular fiction, like popular writers like Stephen King, Crichton, Elmore Leonard, people who are not literary writers. You know, we spent a lot of time in the last episode, St. Stephen King. I was just talking about how, you know, even though he's a popular writer, Stephen King is be- is better than I think a lot of literary novelists, right? But Stephen King's not going to win the Nobel Prize uh, for literature or uh, the Man Booker Prize or, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of other, of other uh, literary awards, but he's not going to win any of those anytime soon because he's considered a popular writer people maybe genre authors is a is a good name for him but people who who write for um yeah i don't know they write for the common man so even though i've had a copy of cloud atlas for probably like two years uh, and the copy i had actually found on the street there's this thing that happens in the bay area i maybe it happens everywhere too but people do this thing where they leave shit on the sidewalk all the time and they think because they put a sign on it that says free they're not just dumping their shit everywhere um, which is really where they're, for the most part, it's garbage. People leave like broken down furniture. Um, every once in a while though, you, you find a boon. Someone will have like a collection of books or something. But, um, this, uh, this, my copy of Cloud Atlas was just in a pile of books that someone had left on the side of the street. So I've had a copy of it for like two years and I have seen the movie and it, it's, it kind of touched me. Like I know that movie, I think it's pretty divisive for some people, but you know, not that it was a perfect movie, but there was something about the core message or conceptually there was something going on, going on there that really kind of touched me and kind of was kind of stabbed at something that I've been thinking about um, for the last few years around the time that I saw it. And in some way it kind of, it was a sting of jealousy because it was getting at some things conceptually I had hoped to um, kind of touch on with my own creative work that I think I never really had the courage to touch on. So in some ways it kind of made me feel like I did have my finger on the pulse of something but it was kind of a, a sting of jealousy that here somebody had already executed it. And especially since it was based on a not, I mean, the movie came out in, I don't know, 2000 teens sometime, mid-teens, 2014, 15, 16, 17, I don't fucking know. But the novel came out in like early 2000. 
maybe like 2003, 2004. Um, so it was kind of wounding in that way too, thinking, oh, here's this thing I've been thinking about. But even the person who actually executed at least a part of it or touched on it, you know, clearly very, uh, very well, very meaningfully. And, you know, this is sort of, this is already in somebody's creative rearview mirror, uh, which was kind of a wounding thing to see. But, um, but yeah, started to read that. I'm really enjoying it. And otherwise, that's kind of it. So thanks for listening to this episode. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know why, but the thing that's jumping into my mind is this idea of the definition of insanity. Actually, it came up because me and my girlfriend, uh, we watched The Great British Baking Show. And uh, if you're watching the most recent one, um, they started doing this thing, and I, I assume it has something to do with the pandemic and shelter in place. But, you know, normally the cool thing about finding a show you like is you can just binge watch all the episodes. Well, they've done this thing with the most recent season of Great British Baking Show on Netflix where they're releasing the episodes every week, which I, I really don't like. I mean, I understand in, in terms of, um, uh, I don't know, spreading the views out over time, but that it, it also seems kind of antithetical to what's so cool about Netflix. You know, they release a show like The Queen's Gambit, and the cool part about it is that you can watch as much of it as you want. You can watch it over time. You can watch it all at once. There's just, I don't know, there's something about this, I don't know, releasing episodes on a schedule that just seems antithetical to what's so cool about them. But be that as it may, um, I still, you know, me and my girlfriend still watch the episodes as they came out. But we do this thing at the start of every season of Great British Baking Show, um, where before we even see something that they they bake, we have to pick our horse. We have to pick the person we think is going to take the whole thing. And as long as that person's on the show, we root for them. Now, if your person gets kicked out, you can obviously um, uh, switch over to somebody else. But the, the cool part is when somebody... I mean, rarely will the person that you select win. I mean, the odds are just not in your favor. Uh, but the cool part is uh, just kind of rooting for someone through the episodes, right? Um And so I guess I have to, a spoiler warning, or a spoiler alert, but if you're watching the most recent one, you can plug your ears now, but uh, the person I've been rooting for the entire time, Juan, this sort of young boy named Peter, who's very charming. I was actually saying to my girlfriend, I said, you know, if I had a daughter and she brought home someone like this dude, Peter, I would have no fucking concerns. Like, that's the type of, like, I think your worst fear is like, you'll have a daughter and she's dating some bad boy. Um, and that brings up a lot of thoughts for me anyway, but about being protective of your daughters and I mean, in some ways it sort of makes you confront like what you, what you actually know men to be capable, capable of and who they are and who the men and that you've known in your life have been and how they've treated people. But, um, yeah, so there's something about when I see, I actually felt this about a coworker of mine one time. I, and I think I told him this, I said, you know, you're the type of person, if I eventually had a daughter, I would want them to date because you're a good person. <laughs> But there's something about this person, Peter, on Great British Baking Show that I was like, if my daughter brought home somebody like Peter, I would have no fucking concerns. I'd be very happy because they're a good person. But there's something else that comes up for me, too, with this person, which is on every season, like most shows, you know, if you watch them consecutively, you see that they kind of have, you know, they're casting for a type. Every season has, you know, kind of the same constellation of people. There's like one or two older people who are kind of charming in their own sort of uh, elderly, quaint sort of way. There are certain diversity demographic n niches that they seem to try to fill. Um, 
you know, they basically have, uh, you know, they have some boxes that they want to tick. And usually in each season, they have a very young person who's still incredibly talented for their age. And so my favorite thing is when the young person happens to demonstrate skills that are beyond their years. You know, you have these people who have been baking their whole life, and they do okay. But you'll see a young person like this dude, Peter, who has, I don't know, they possess a knowledge of the craft and skill that is is really just beyond their years. And so there's something um, that's really endearing about, uh, in, there's something endearing, there's something that I find endearing about that. And so that's the reason I rooted for Peter, and he happened to win, so that was cool. I think he may be the youngest winner in that show's history. <clears throat> but yeah. Oh, but this thing that came up, right? So the definition of insanity, there was one part right in the very end where one of his competitors, one of his competitors said, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I fucking hate when people say that. And for me, I kind of, I feel like I can point to when that saying entered the cultural zeitgeist or a collective mentality from a fucking commercial. And I can't remember which one it, I can't remember which one it is, but it was this commercial that came out and said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It probably, it's probably some bullshit infomercial. If you happen to find it, you can let me know. But for some reason, that, calcified in people's brains. And I have to admit, when you hear it, there is something catchy about it. You know? There is something catchy about that sort of simple, um, I was going to say titration. I don't even know if that's the fucking right word, but distilling, distilling this idea of, you know, insanity. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's not the definition of insanity. The definition of insanity is being profoundly mentally ill and delusional. (laughs) Maybe the definition of insanity that they sort of advertise this way is really a definition of delusion. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's not insanity. (laughs) It kind of, uh, like when you look at Joker, you say, oh, that dude's insane. Ted Bundy is insane. I watched this movie recently called The Vanishing. That, the, 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 the villain of that movie is insane. <clears throat> Have you seen The Vanishing? Um, originally, I think it's a Swedish movie. I always embarrass myself. You feel like such a dumbass when you, you know these foreign movies, and even though you've watched them one or two times, you really can't, you really can't pinpoint the country of origin. You feel like such a dumb American where you're like, I think it's, uh, I think it's Swedish. It could be Dutch. It could be some other Scandinavian country. Um, who the fuck knows? I think it's Swedish. The original name is like Spore Loose or something like that, but it's the American title is The Vanishing. Um, they remade it with Jeff Bridges, which is not very good. I think in like the, the early 90s or something like that. But um, the original is pretty good. The beginning is like the, the, the exposition. Basically, the premise is this couple are on a, on a road trip. And uh, when they stop in this gas station, uh, the girl gets, she just disappears. And it's already very clear that she gets kidnapped because they even show leading up to it this person who's sort of preparing themselves or stealing their nerves for this kidnap. Um, and uh, 
So we know she's been kidnapped. We don't really know exactly what happened. We just know that the kidnapper and her were in the same place. Uh, they were in proximity of each other at the same time, and, and we sort of deduced that he kidnapped her. But the plot is, you know, if you had to describe the plot, you would say, you know, it's just about this guy pursuing the person who kidnapped his girlfriend, trying to find out what happened to her, trying to find out who this person is, and he's getting these sort of teasing letters from him, like a serial killer. Um, like if you see a movie like Zodiac, you'll see the serial killer sending these sort of teasing um, letters to the newspapers, right? Toying with them, leaving clues, um, trying to stay in contact with them. And there's something like that that's going on with the kidnapper and this boyfriend. Um, but the most interesting part of that movie, and it's kind of a weird thing to say, but from an entertainment perspective, the most interesting part of the movie is right after the kidnapping, there's this whole sequence where you see the kidnapper slash serial killer, whatever you want to call him, He's rehearsing to prepare for the kidnapping and pretty much his first one. But like you see him like pour chloroform on a rag and like try it out on himself and like time the amount of time that he passes out. And then he starts to do, okay, well, if if somebody gets knocked out for this amount of time, that means I can only go in this type of radius before I can chloroform somebody and drag him back to my place here. And then you see him like rehearse physically like letting someone into his car and then timing how long it takes him to walk around the back of the car and like douse the rag in chloroform and he's he, you, he's practicing the physical maneuver of this kidnap and then he starts to go out in public and practice engaging people what kind of stories work to lure someone back to my car etc etc and even though it sounds really dark <laughs> and it sounds really perverse and it, it, it is all those things from a entertainment perspective that's the best part of the movie and so when it goes back to this you know boyfriend pursuing the issue trying to pursue the kidnapper um one the acting isn't very good but um but uh yeah i don't know what the takeaway is except that's insanity not just expecting the same thing or doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result the definition of insanity is being fucking insane In a way, it actually reminds me of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. I was saying, I think on the last episode, that a big thing, and less so in the last week, but at least the last time you and I were talking, you know, I, I had this sort of renewed interest in Christopher Hitchens. Um, anyway, this I'm sure this will all come together, but, you know, atheism was a big part of my life when I was in my late teens. Um, I think ever since I had the, like the, ever since I had sort of the, the capacity to sort of make, I don't want to say a, a, you know, a genuinely informed, um, decision, but I would say a relatively informed, uh, choice about my opinion on the matter, I should say, I was, I've, I've said I'm, I'm an atheist and I, and that wasn't always the case. I mean, I remember being young and going to Sunday school a little bit. And I remember I had this brief moment. It sounds crazy, but around the time I was in fourth grade, I had discovered the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And I was so taken with it. Um, I still think it's a pretty cool musical. But I was so taken with Jesus Christ Superstar at that time that I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible. And I remember two things. I remember being on vacation in the Bahamas. And uh, I remember buying a cross. I remember being at this sort of outdoor flea market type thing and buying this pink cross. And I remember that was part of my, I don't know, wanting to be a good person. 
uh, on another episode, I talked about the film Searching for Bobby Fischer. And I'm not going to go into all these things too much in detail, except to say, you know, there was a point when I was young that I decided I was going to be a good person. Um, that was going to be my, that for some reason that calcified in my brain is like, my goal in life is to be a good person and to kind of be almost like a model good person. You know, um, I probably, you know, I got a lot of credit when I was younger and I got a lot of attention from adults for being a good person, for doing the right thing, for kind of being a virtuous kid. And, um, when I look back now, I sort of see where that came from. And at least, uh, when I was in fourth grade for a while, this idea of being a good Christian boy was like part of that. I said, oh, I'm going to be a good Christian. And so I wore this cross and I remember I started reading the Bible and I thought, fuck this. I started reading the Bible and I was like, this is boring. This sucks. If this is what being a Christian is, I can't do this. And so I very quickly got away from it. And I don't know how, I mean, probably just growing up, we all go through kind of a rebellious phase, but I, I do remember you know, very shortly after that, anytime the topic was broached, I just decided I was an atheist. And yet, I probably would have gone through most of my life and believed in things like ghosts or astrology or tarot cards or something like that. You know, even though I would have said, oh, well, isn't it obvious that religion's bullshit? Um, there's probably many other things that I would have entertained because I never really thought about them critically in the same way. Um, it wasn't until I was in college, I was taking this astronomy class in my junior college. And I remember the teacher put up this quote from uh, Carl Sagan. And I don't remember what it was, but it was a quote from his book, The Demon Haunted World, which is a really good book. I, I Now that I'm saying this, I feel like I've told this story before. But the point is, is that it, it was some quote about the nature of pseudoscience and something like that. But as I read that quote, it was like a key turning in my brain. And in that moment, I realized, oh, not only do I not believe in God, I don't believe in any of any of any sort of supernatural stuff. It was like immediately it was almost like the 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 <laughs> the slate was wiped clean and I was sort of starting off and I and I it sounds weird to say this because they sound like they're two things that are juxtaposed but it was kind of like when I stumbled on the I Ching. I knew in that moment I was entering a new phase of my life. Not necessarily definitive in the in the sort of final sense it was open-ended but I knew at that moment that I was entering on a new phase um and so that really began starting with reading Carl Sagan I mean that really uh and and the demon haunted world that book in particular that began a whole period where I was I, I sort of you know identified as a skeptic and uh this was right at the very beginning of the new atheism movement I mean I remember when books like Sam Harris's The End of Faith uh, Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. Um, you know, there's this guy, DJ Grothy, who hosted a podcast, uh, called point of inquiry, which was huge for me at that time, having a lot of skeptics and, and humanists, uh, on that podcast. Um, that, and, and that was just a big, that was just a big part. I mean, th this also like when YouTube was first kind of coming up before podcasts really hit big, um, there was really only a couple things to really listen to, at least for me. And one was the Adam Carolla podcast when he first started, um, not even the Adam Carolla podcast proper. I mean, when he was doing morning radio in LA and they were podcasting that show, that and point of inquiry, um, were things that I listened to. And that was really before, this is probably like 2000, 2004, 2005 before podcasts really hit big. Um, but I guess around that time, Christopher Hitchens was a huge thing too. And even before his book, but God is not great came out just kind of going down the rabbit hole, uh, with him, 
Now, where am I going with all this? Christopher Hitchens. Oh, God delusion. Insanity. Who the fuck knows, man? But, you know, one of the big... <laughs> when, when Richard Dawkins came out with his book, The God Delusion, which by the time it came out, if you had been following his stuff, we really didn't need to read the book. You had already heard all these arguments through his, you know, debates and stuff that he did. Uh, you know, the book was really just a repository of all the arguments you'd ever heard him say if you had been following his debates and um, talks on YouTube and that sort of stuff, and, and like podcast appearances and interviews and that sort of stuff. But the biggest thing was his belief that, you know, belief in God is a delusion. You know, the same way people believe, believe all sorts of things that are not true, if you are a religious person, you are, by definition, delusional. Which I think was interesting in terms of like, I don't know, just kind of reframing religious belief. You know, it's funny to see how the, I don't know, liberal left, or I don't know what you, religious moderates, I, I don't know, I don't know how to frame this specifically, but just to see how that has changed over time. Um, there's something that came up in anthropology that may, uh, that may come up as I talk about this, but, you know, left people used to, you know, religious tolerance was a huge part of that in the early 2000s. And uh, even though you could have been anti-Catholic, anti-organized religion, there was still this fundamental belief in belief, that belief in God was still a good thing and we had to respect people's um, views. And I know it sounds, you know, I'm not saying that's changed necessarily, but there was this sort of overarching sort of kumbaya, live and let live kind of attitude about the left at that time. And that's what new atheism was kind of, um, was kind of getting at. I mean, in the same way that it was anti-religion, it was sort of anti, you know, you couldn't just have these kind of summary, I don't know, beliefs that just didn't really hold up to scrutiny, you know? And there was just something about, honestly, there was something about skepticism that really just felt, um, you know, there was a sort of contrarianism to it that I, I that still speaks to me. Um, even now that we have the sort of, you know, we call it the sort of social justice movement or whatever. You know, I like people who sort of challenge the status quo, whatever it is right now. Um, and it's not just being contrary for the sake of being contrary. Like, I think a lot of QAnon um, alt-right sort of people, you know, they like that sort of, there's a type of, uh, like, I guess if I had to compare it with new atheism, you know, it wasn't like people who would like do performance art where they defecate on a crucifix or urinate on a Bible. That stuff is not cool for me. Like, I still think there's something about being, um, sort of reverential or, or deferential. I don't know the word for it, but, um, not being, you can't be crass and cruel about it. You know, if you have a critique, it has to be sort of reasoned and sort of well articulated. Um, to me, the sort of QAnon alt-right thing is sort of like the, the sort of uh, crucifix <laughs> or defecating on a crucifix equivalent of uh, of sort of being contrary to the social judge. Like there's a sort of, um, I don't know how to articulate it, I guess, but, um, you know, they sort of, there's sort of a puckish quality. Um, to them. They like snubbing their... Like, there's something about Trump that appeals um, to people who like to buck the status quo. You know? And they don't admit it, but they like pointing a middle finger at most people. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who don't mind delving into this area where they know there's the status quo, but they also aren't reconciled to just sort of adopting you know, the platitudes or the cliches about whatever we have to do wholeheartedly and really, really trying to hold those things up to scrutiny. That's the area I like to go into. 
Um, anyway, that's what I think Christopher Hitchens is. And it's sort of weird for me because even someone as controversial as Jordan Peterson, who has said a lot of things that I don't agree with. So I, you know, um, I don't want to embarrass myself by sort of giving a, you know, a sort of unqualified endorsement of Jordan Peterson. But even I've heard, I've heard him say a lot of things that I actually think are really intelligent and I don't think are easily dismissed. And I think are things that people, you know, who don't like him, I, I think he has some things that are worth thinking about. He's probably more on the Bill O'Reilly end of the spectrum where there's plenty he says that I don't agree with, but I, I'm not, I'm not for dismissing him wholeheartedly. But the, but one person who I think the liberal left still hates and hating him at the time because he kind of he kind of was for the Iraq War, which I don't uh, I don't think was his uh, I don't I think, I think it's one stance that's going to be hard for him to be fully vindicated on, but um, I think it makes sense if you understand his uh, his worldview. But Christopher Hitchens is one of these people who I've come back to, and even as I watch more of his stuff now and things I've seen before, but also as people have uploaded more Christopher Hitchens content to the internet, I'm just blown away with how unique and penetrating and really kind of how bulletproof his criticisms are. I mean, he would go on talk shows like Charlie Rose. He would walk into any, I think, I think in one episode of the Charlie Rose Rose show, he's at a table with like four or five people who have completely different perspectives than him. And he is fucking bulletproof. And he, it doesn't matter who he sits down with. His position is so well thought out, reasoned and articulated it's like everybody else just just looks like they're reciting platitudes compared to him. I mean, he's frighteningly intelligent. And it's like you sort of get a kick when he does these debates about religion. You feel bad for anybody who shares a stage with him because he just sort of goes up there and fucking drops bombs on them. And then they have to go up and like make a counter argument and they look ridiculous. And then he gets to go back up and sort of tear them down. And part of it is the power of rhetoric. You know, I'm not saying everything he says is sort of... Uh, Beyond criticism, a lot of it is just his personality. You know, some people are just good debaters, good statesmen, good orators, right? Um, Even if everything that they say isn't factually true, they have the, I don't know if it's moral force, but they have the charisma to sort of evangelize people, no matter what they're saying. Like, you feel like Christopher Hitchens could sell you, what do they say? You sell water to a... What are the sayings that people use? I don't know what it is, but he could basically sell you anything. So anyway, I don't know how we got on this topic. We were talking about Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, but, um, yeah, it's funny. I think as I've just seen more and more of Christopher Hitchens, you know, there's, (laughs) I'm, I'm so sick and tired of everybody's, you know, sort of take on our, our, Uh, you know, our cultural and political situation currently. If there's one person I would love to hear from, it would be Christopher Hitchens. He's probably the only person who I think would have something truly penetrating and insightful to say about where we're at as a society right now. Um, Yeah, it's just a weird thing to be thinking. You know, I've been watching, I've just been watching Christopher Hitchens sort of talk at length about how he hated Bill Clinton. It actually makes me want to go back and read some of his books that I never read. Like he has this book called No One Left to Lie To about Clinton. And which was one of the, you know, the first sort of, 
I mean, along with the O.J. Simpson trial and Michael Jackson's uh, first trial, child molestation charges, you know, the Clinton scandal was one of the first things that I was sort of conscious conscious of as a kid that was happening in current events. And yeah, it's just so funny to hear his take on that topic and how he fucking hated Bill Clinton. Um, yeah, it's just interesting to hear someone's sort of skewering assessment of somebody who was sort of held up as like a beacon of virtue by the li- by the liberal left at the time. It, there's also a couple of things. When you go back and look at that period, you know, since we've had a conservative president in the White House who's been held up to public scrutiny. And, uh, you know, it's just funny to hear there was a time in this country where it was happening to uh, a Democratic president in the White House. And just once the roles are reversed, you hear so much of the same thing lobbed at each other from the same sides. And I'm not saying, look, I uh, if I had to choose, I'd probably take Clinton over Trump. But it's just interesting that we sort of pretend as if there's the good guys and the bad guys when... You know, there's there's certainly evil people on both sides. And especially, I think, you know, I think Christopher Hitchens has been vindicated since the whole Epstein thing has come out. And we've seen, you know, the proximity that Clinton had to that guy. You just realize, oh, shit. You never know. You never know how fucking corrupt people are, you know. It also just sheds light on the whole election with Hillary Clinton realizing she would, you know, if, if Clinton, if Bill Clinton was bad, Hillary Clinton was party to all of it also. So... Anyway, I always regret getting into politics because the truth is I don't know anything about it. Anyway, for some reason I'm thinking about Tom Hanks right now. I don't know why. I guess because I'm reading Cloud Atlas and he was in the movie. But actually it's because... You know, in addition to Cloud Atlas, there was two movies I watched over the last couple of weeks. And I don't remember why these came up necessarily, but I watched Sully about the, uh, what was the guy's name? Sully, you know, the, the pilot who landed the plane in the Hudson. I saw that movie. It was a Clint Eastwood movie. And it was like most Clint Eastwood movies where it's just not that good. <laughs> you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a film. It has all the components of a, of a film. It's usually well acted and it's well cast. But when it does not hold up to scrutiny, there's something fundamentally sort of uh, vacuous about it. Like, if you go back and watch Million Dollar Baby, that movie sucks. That movie came out and it was celebrated as some, I don't know, the Forrest Gump of the fucking decade. I don't know. People loved that goddamn movie. And that movie is garbage. You go back and look at it, it's fucking, it's silly. There's something about Sully, which is like, even though the sequences in the airplane are actually very intriguing and very good... And Tom Hanks is always, like, Tom Hanks is sort of like Tom Cruise, and that I think Tom Cruise gets a lot of shit, but if you actually spend a lot of time with Tom Cruise movies, you realize, oh, he's actually a really good actor. Uh, not that uh, people don't like Tom Hanks, but Tom Hanks is like a fucking spooky good actor. Um, and so in Sully, you go, oh yeah, he's great, but you kind of, even though there are moments that are good in it, you already know exactly what you're going to get out of it, which is, he's a hero, but he doesn't want to be a hero, and he's thrust into the public under public scrutiny, which is difficult for him. Um, and even though there's this drama that plays out, like, oh, is he or is he not a hero? You already know at the end of the movie he's going to be a hero. So, um, so yeah, kind of disappointing. So there were moments that were good in that movie, and even kind of emotional, too. Like, when you actually see at least the dramatization of what went down in that airplane, you realize, holy fucking shit, man. It's insane. Um, 
But uh, the the one that really hits home is, and it's sort of, I guess it's the sort of other side of the same coin, which is, I don't know if every time some man does something uh, heroic in the world, they just, when they make the movie, they go to Tom Hanks first. But um, the other movie I, I rewatched actually was Captain Phillips about um, the captain of the, uh, there was a sort of famous incident with a, um, a cargo ship, I guess, that was uh, sort of, you know, in the Somali Strait. And there was this whole thing with pirates for a long time, and I'm sure it still happens. But basically, these uh, three pilots sort of, uh, you know, take a cargo ship hostage, and Tom Hanks plays the captain of the ship, and it's basically his job to sort of try to save his men. And um, I don't know if the movie did very well when it came out. I don't know if it was really celebrated when it came out. But that I, I saw it maybe, maybe it came out 10 years ago, 2008, 2009, or something like that. But whenever I ended up watching it, it was one of the most riveting and like thrilling and suspenseful movies I'd ever seen. And I remember just actually kind of being like kind of emotional at the end of it. And uh, probably just because I was thinking about Sully and thinking, oh, here's another Tom Hanks movie where he plays the sort of the male hero. I was reminded of this movie, Captain Phillips, and I can't tell you who directed it, but if you haven't seen it, definitely see it. And maybe because maybe I'm sort of equating it to like Elmore Leonard and Stephen King, because here's this sort of genre movie that was made as just sort of a blockbuster. But when you actually watch it, it accomplishes more than most movies that take themselves very seriously and try to have this. I don't know. They try to elicit this huge emotional response by being very serious or ponderous or whatever. But if it's actually just about being truly impacted by a film, that movie Captain Phillips will do more for you than probably most movies you've seen in the last few years. It is truly gripping. It is truly suspenseful. And even though you already know what's going to happen, right? Or even though you already know how this thing is going to end, even though even if you don't know specifically, you kind of know how things are going to shake out, right? You will be holding your breath until the last minute. And at the very end... Tom Hanks has this moment where he plays, you know, the immediate sort of shock and PTSD of being, how do you say it, extricated from the situation. That is like, I mean, I'm so glad I watched it in private because you will, <laughs> you will shed a couple tears. And I was like, I just can't imagine watching this in the, in the, in the theater on the big screen with the sound going and, and all that sort of stuff and not being, uh, not being overwhelmed by it. And it's just funny. I, you just think this movie probably, I had more of an emotional and sort of physical, visceral response to this movie than probably maybe even most movies I've seen in my life. And yet, why doesn't something like this win Best Picture? You know, I don't know if it actually won Best Picture, but it's usually the movies like Little Miss Sunshine or, um, I don't know, there's always some cause du jour or uh, that, that's, like, Crash is something. Didn't that win, like, Best Picture one year? And you think, that movie's not great. Although I will say it has some thrilling scenes in it that I don't think get enough credit. How is it that movies like this don't win Best Picture? And who knows? Maybe we'll look up and I and, and it did win Best Picture or Tom Hanks war, uh, won Best Actor or something. But that, to me, is, like like, real filmmaking. Anyway, you know, it's funny. Sometimes uh, I haven't listened back to the last episode and maybe not even the one before that, but sometimes I do go back and listen to these episodes and I think, you know, I can spot 
themes or motives that I see sort of carry through the whole thing. And because I kind of already know where the conversation goes, it's sort of funny. I, I sort of see how things are interconnected, you know, and I sort of connect dots that maybe even in the telling of it, I didn't really connect. Um, I think in our episode, 75% or one of those episodes, I didn't realize how many different ways that, that number and that value had come up, which was kind of interesting for me. So I don't know, as I'm sitting here, just feeling like I'm sort of diarrhea of the mouth between, uh, Christopher Hitchens and Captain Phillips and Elmore Leonard. I'm just wondering how are all these things related? <laughs> Cause this episode so far feels pretty kaleidoscopic, you know, how does this all come together? Yeah. I've been watching a lot of movies, man. Actually, I've kind of gotten back into this Korean film kick. I feel like about a year ago, I was probably extolling the virtues of the Korean films. And then all of a sudden, Parasite won Best Picture. And I think I kind of got away from it because we're talking... I mean, I'm a contrarian. As soon as everybody goes one direction... Like, actually, I feel this way about chess recently. <laughs> I mean, I play as much as ever. In fact, uh, my brother and I are starting to play again more... Uh, I was going to say correspondence, but we'll get on a, well, you know, we'll send you, we'll, I'll send him a challenge while, and we'll either FaceTime or just kind of play online. We'll play a couple games a few times a week and I actually played, uh, played my girlfriend yesterday too. Um, so I'm playing chess as much as ever, but it's like, I do feel defensive now that the queen's gambit is out. There's a part of me that's like, no, chess is my thing. And even though it's easy to say things like, Hey, this will be great for the game of chess and more people will get into it, et cetera, et cetera. I still feel defensive. Um, I, I don't know what it is about my character, but I always want to be where the puck isn't. I want to skate to where the puck isn't. And it always, you know, I don't know. It, it always bums me out when I sort of have skated someplace and that's where the puck's coming next. Like there was this period where I was like, man, Korean movies are really kicking ass, man. There's a lot of great fucking Korean films out there. And all of a sudden Parasite comes out and wins Best Picture. And I think, God damn it. I thought this was an area where I could sort of explore and like feel like I was sort of, I don't know, I always want to feel like I'm looking at something that other people aren't looking at, uh, aren't looking at. But um, I saw this movie recently called I Saw the Devil, which uh, I think actually came out in like 2011, maybe like 2014 or something. But it has, uh, the villain is the, is the male lead from Old Boy. And uh, it's a totally brutal, violent film. If you're queasy, don't watch it. Or if you have a partner who can't stand that stuff, watch it by yourself. But it's brutal, it's violent, um, it's gruesome. But it's probably one of the more engrossing movies I've seen in a long time. And <laughs> this may not sound good, but I've, I've sort of I was I think I was thinking about this movie in context because I I guess what I'm about to say is I watched a lot of Korean I, I watched a lot of Korean movies lately. I watched this movie. I saw The Devil. Um, I watched another kind of revenge film called The Man from Nowhere, which only after realizing it did I realize, oh, it's like the same formula for the plot of The Professional, um, the Luc Besson movie. But, um, but um, oh, and then I watched uh, um, Memories of Murder, uh, which is a movie I, pr- I probably saw like seven years ago or something like that. Um, what else did I watch? I rewatched The Host. And... Um, did I see anything else? Well, I don't know. I mean, I sort of, the, I'm, I'm really just reflecting on a lot of the Korean movies I've seen recently, like Parasite or Burning or The Wailing, uh, even Train to Busan, which is, there is, you know, and maybe I'm just uh, too much of a white Anglo to really recognize it, but 
to me, there seems to be a Korean style of filmmaking. You know, maybe I'm just more familiar with American films, but it's like, and actually, I think you could probably say this about film in general. Um, there's less of a, you know, it, it's very rare when a film, filmmaker comes out and they have a very distinctive style. Like the films, um, I can't summon the, the, the filmmaker's name, but when you see Tangerine or The Florida Project, it's refreshing because you have this sort of new singular voice for cinema. And you're like, oh shit, here's like a new voice in cinema. Or like last night I watched Mandy, which is, you know, the filmmaker, what is his name? Like Patmos or Paulos Catamos or some bullshit like that. I think it's like a Greek name, but he did a movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow. He did this uh, uh, film with Nicolas Cage called Mandy, which is sort of an, another revenge film, coincidentally. But visually, you watch that movie and it's just not like anything else you've seen. So love it or hate it, at least it's this sort of, it's a new voice, right? Um, and I guess I was thinking about Quentin Tarantino. You know, it's like you see a movie like Pulp Fiction and whether you like it or not, at least it's not like anything else you've seen. When I look at Korea cinema, a lot of it feels sort of the same. Um, it's all beautifully shot. There's sort of, it's very, it's, it's usually very violent. A lot of sexual violence also, which is kind of just unnerving and disturbing, but a lot of sexual violence. Um, but also very emotive also. And also the, the, a lot of the Korean movies, they really mix, they're usually not just one genre. Like in America, you have a horror movie or you have a comedy movie. But in Korean cinema, they usually mix up genres and movies that start off funny become very serious. Like for me, a great example is The Wailing. The male lead in that starts off as a sort of bumbling idiot who's sort of a, like a clown. He's like a clown character. And by the end of it, I mean, it's one of the more emotive scenes you'll see in movies. Uh, you know, it's just a very dramatic performance. And uh, I just find that with uh, with a lot of Korean movies. So... Uh, what am I saying about all this? I don't know. <clears throat> but I guess, uh, you know, I watched a movie like I Saw the Devil, and you look at the date it was made. It was like 2011, maybe as late as 2014. Excuse me. But you just think, why? You know, Parasite is a fine movie. But why is that the breakout film? Why doesn't a movie like I Saw the Devil make more of a splash when it comes out? You know, do things just take longer to get over here? I don't know. It's also kind of devastating just to see how many good movies are out there. <laughs> yeah, maybe not even good movies, maybe just movies in general. I don't know. I was looking up when I was on Amazon, I was sort of looking for movies to watch. And for some reason, I think this was the night that I, I sat down to watch something at like 11 o'clock and it was 1215 and I was still browsing. But one of the things that stands out from that browsing period is I was looking on Amazon um, and I kind of went down this horror movie rabbit hole. And I think it started with seeing, you know, the uh, I don't know what you call it, the still or the whatever. I saw the link for this movie called Dagon, which is a, a film adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft story that me and my brother had on DVD 
in like 2003 or whenever this fucking movie came out. And I don't know how you stumble on these stuff. I think my brother was reading a lot of HP Lovecraft at the time, but it's like, I don't know how these shitty movies fall into your lap or how you see them in just four different, like, um, there was this, I think it was Dan Curtis is the director, but Dan Curtis did this movie version of Dracula that me and my brother watched two dozen times as a kid. And so I rewatched it after finishing the novel. Um, I think on YouTube, actually it could be on Amazon also, but, um, it was just insane to think this is like not a great movie. Why, why, why was my brother and I so enamored of this fucking film growing up? But one that stood out to me also was this movie Dagon. And it's like, it sucks. It's, I remember watching it thinking, oh, this movie's awful until the very end. And the last three minutes of it were so impactful for me. It made the whole fucking movie worth it. Now, I'm not saying I'd have the same reaction if I rewatched it, but I remember as like a young, impressionable, kind of would-be creative, there was something about those last three minutes that just fucking hit me like a ton of bricks, and I was like, oh, shit. That kind of cosmic, I don't know what they call it, like cosmic horror or some bullshit, but um, it just hit me pretty heavy. But anyway, it sort of you go down this rabbit hole of recommendations, right? And it's just like I saw this litany of just garbage horror movies, even shit that me and my brother did watch as, when we were younger, like movies like Castle Freak, um, but just this whole history of just garbage movies. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's depressing to see how much content is actually out there just especially for aspiring creative people, it's like the chances of you creating something that people see is just fucking so disturbing. I mean, I feel the same way with music. If you ever just peruse Spotify and see the actual numbers of people who are creating content or, or making music, like every once in a while I get these emails from, uh, what's the service called? It was like a streaming service. People would do live shows on it. It was kind of the thing for a while. I can't even remember the fucking name, but I still get emails from them saying like, um, you know, look at the artists who are doing live streams or doing live, you know, uh, um, webcast performances this week. And there's like a hundred people you've never fucking heard of who have their little niche audience on these fucking streaming services. And it's just, it's depressing. There's too many people in the world. <laughs> there's too many of us out there. I mean, hell, with podcasts. I mean, how many fucking other fucking white dudes with microphones are out there just sort of making these talking podcasts. It's like, why would you listen to any of them? Why would you listen to this one? You know, woe unto anyone who feels compelled to create anything. I mean, I guess whatever you do, the point is you better enjoy the making of it because the chances of you being successful at it are fucking nil to none. I was actually talking with someone I work with and they were just sort of reflect. I didn't realize that they were an artist, but they mentioned that they went to art school and I was like, Oh, I didn't know that. And they were sort of bemoaning the fact that they, 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 the art used to be a huge part of their life and they don't do it anymore. And they sort of acknowledged, I mean, especially when I first started working with the people I work with, I mean, music was obviously a huge part of my life. Um, it's just so funny to, I've said it before, I may have mentioned it even on the podcast, but there was some, in the course of that conversation, I said, well, since Shelter in Place, I really haven't even picked up my guitar. I really haven't. I mean, I'll pick it up every once in a while and strum a few chords and then sort of put it down. But it's like, I don't even think in terms of songs anymore. 
You know, there were years of my life, a decade of my life even, where as I went through my life, everything was everything was material for my songs. You know, I was always turning a lyric over in my head, or I had that, you know... Like I, Stephen King was talking about, you know, as long as he has two or three ideas for novels ahead of him, he feels like he's in a good spot. But he's he's just sort of chewing on those plots, you know. The, he's the, All those things are in their germinal or gestational uh, phase or whatever. And there's just something about, when I think about my creative life now, I have none of that. Like, none of the stuff I'm experiencing is being turned into songs. I don't know what it is right now. I mean, obviously, the podcast is is my output. It's been my consistent output for the last... Well, over a year, you know, is it a year and a half yet? I'm not sure. Um, probably a year and a couple months, but, um, other than that, you know, what is, what is my creative output? Maybe this is, maybe this satiates it. Um, but I don't know. I think just this recognition that I don't really think in terms of songs anymore. And I guess it's interesting for me to, I mean, I've always been a, you know, an avid reader, avid, you know, I've always been a huge fan of film, but in terms of my consumption and what I think about, that's really been the focus. You know, I'm surprised that with this podcast, I spend as little time talking about music as I actually do, but I, I think that's always been the case. You know, no matter what I'm doing, even when I was writing songs, I mean, my biggest sources of inspiration were films and books. Why didn't I want to be a writer? I don't know. Why didn't I want to be a filmmaker? I don't know. It's just weird that the you know the source that you draw the most inspiration inspiration from, you know, your output is actually something else. So who knows? Anyway, my mind is going back to this idea of like waiting until the last minute to do things. And as I'm thinking about it, um, <laughs> I mean, one thing I tell myself I'm going to do differently every year is my uh, Christmas shopping. You know, your boy's an atheist, but uh, I happen to celebrate Christmas more or less. Um, and I think it's it's sort of like my, my stance on Thanksgiving. You know, I'm an atheist, but I don't want to chain myself to a fucking... Uh, chain myself to the radiator and protest over over, over uh, Christmas or the, the fact that the word God is on the dollar bill. Um, if anything, it's, you know, let's secularize it, make an excuse to, to one, not work most importantly, or to get holiday pay, but also just trade gifts and have dinner. And I don't know. So that's fine with me. I don't mind trading gifts on Christmas. I don't, I don't get gifts for most people, but, um, you know, if you're like me, I'm doing a whole secret sender slash secret Santa thing. I mean, we can't call it secret Santa, so we call it secret sender, but I'm doing a whole thing like that for my work. Um, and with my girlfriend's family, we're doing a whole secret Santa thing. So, um, those are the people I have to give gifts for or get gifts for. And, uh, I was just thinking I have yet to do that. So maybe, uh, maybe I'll spend the rest of my evening kind of surfing around Amazon trying to find baubles for people. I think that's the hard part too, is because people always ask me, you know, what do you want for Christmas or what do you want for your birthday? And the truth is I really don't want anything. You know, I'm really, what I'd really like is for somebody to look at me and say, hey, you know what, let's, (laughs) actually, as I'm saying this, me and my brother kind of do have this agreement, but, you know, I would like my girlfriend and I to, and actually, maybe I'll just, (laughs) maybe I'll just do this with her, but I'll just say, hey, let's not give give each other gifts anymore. Let's just spare each other the responsibility of giving each other gifts, because 
it always makes me feel bad about myself. You know, even when I think about my girlfriend who I've been with for four years, and maybe I'm just a thoughtless motherfucker, but I don't know what to get her. You know, she's not materialistic. There's nothing that she wants that she probably can't get for herself. And I don't know. I just, when I, I don't know, when I think about being thoughtful, I just, there's nothing that comes up for me in terms of like, what can I buy you? Um, I envy people who have that power. You know, some people are able to buy you things that they just sort of, you know, they heard you say something and just sort of filed it away and got it for you. And you think, holy shit, that's a really thoughtful gift. I feel like I had a thoughtful gift recently that, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I can't remember. But the point is, is that I want to be, um, I want to recuse myself, but I also want to be given permission, permission not to think about buying gifts for other people. So, um, one, I guess I'll have that conversation with my girlfriend, but me and my brother do have this tacit agreement that we don't buy each other anything. And it all stems from the fact that when we were younger, I had like my first job or my second job or one of them, but I had this paycheck, which was not a lot of money. It was like maybe like $500 or something like that. But for me, that was a lot of money for like my first paycheck. And it was around the holidays. And I remember I bought my brother a sound system for his car. And at the time, it was all about like you you would get like a CD deck or a CD face and you would get like a, a subwoofer and you would get like an amp for the subwoofer. But it was all about having the subwoofer in your car. And I remember, I think it was at like Best Buy or something, but I ended up getting my brother like an amp, um, a subwoofer and like a CD face. And I think it was like for like $450. And that year, my brother got me a nothing. And so it's been this running joke in our life that, uh, you know, I bought my brother this huge expensive gift. I blew my whole paycheck on his Christmas gift and he didn't get any shit. And so this year, or I, got, I, mean, I would say pretty much every year since then, we just have not gotten each other anything for our birthdays or for Christmas. Um, maybe one or two exceptions, but at least uh, he and I are keeping the tradition alive. Woo! Anyway, folks, um, yeah, I, I think we've reached the end of this episode. Um, yeah, I don't know. I always sort of regret commenting on the episode at the very end of it, so maybe I just won't do that. I'll just say, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, you can on spot on, on, I was going to say Spodcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, subscribe, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. In the meantime... Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.